Our sermon text this morning is taken from Acts chapter 9. I'm going to begin reading at verse 23 to the end of the chapter. These are the words of the living God. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him, speaking of Saul. But their laying await was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And for as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and the garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning into the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that you came into this world so that we might know the Father, and in knowing the Father, we might be part of your mission to fill this world with his life. So we ask you to teach us this morning with your word, this word, so that we may know the Father and walk with you by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Frequently, part of the difficulty we have in understanding and applying the Bible to our lives is that we do not understand the characters involved. So often as we're reading the Bible, there's some things that are plain enough. Okay, this happened, this happened to this guy, this happened to this guy. And, and, this, and the Bible sometimes tells us right there on the page what it means. Uh, but there's a fair bit in the Bible where uh, you can be reading along, and there's actually a pretty significant point being made, but you'll miss it 
because you don't understand the characters involved. You don't understand the backstory of what's going on. And so certain things, we're tempted to focus on certain things when the text is actually pointing you to others. So one, for example, one such character that we often miss is the church, the Christian church. Uh, uh, one, of the, one of the central things um, that becomes evident as you read, particularly the New Testament, over and over again, is that God is particularly interested in this thing called the church, this thing called the church. And it's one of the central characters in the story. It's one of the central characters in the story. But if you don't know that, and if you don't know what God is doing with that character called the church, you can miss a whole bunch of what's going on. So the word for church in Greek is ekklesia, and ekklesia just can, can mean just a gathering of people. It's used in a lot of Greek literature, um, and it's used to describe um, many different kinds of gatherings of people together. So the word for church can simply refer to a generic human assembly. So, you know, something like the Elks Club or the Lions Club or whatever, like that if you were in the old Greek world, they would refer to that as an ecclesia, as a gathering together of people, or uh, a, a political party having a, a meeting and having you know their delegates meet together in a convention or something like that. The Greek word for that is ecclesia, a gathering together. But part of the message of the Bible, as you read, as you're reading the Bible, is that the Bible points us to this a, a different kind of ecclesia, a different kind of gathering. That, that, that is referred to as the church over and over again in uh, the New Testament. And unlike any other human institution, the kinds of things that the Bible says about this ecclesia, the kinds of things that the Bible says about this gathering together of people is completely different than any other kind of human gathering. And so, for example, at the center of the text that I just read a moment ago, right after um, Paul has, has escaped two plots to kill him, he, one in Damascus and then one in Jerusalem. He's, he's been whisked off um, to his hometown of Tarsus. It says this, then had the churches, and I should stop here and just note, my old King James here says churches. Um, it's actually singular, church, just one. It's, it's, this is a bad, poor translation. Then had the church rest through all Judea and, and Galilee. So all the believers are called the church of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And all these verbs are singular. And it was edified, and it walked in the fear of the Lord, and it had the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and it was multiplied. Okay? So you have this story um, about Saul, Paul, near miss, barely making it out of Damascus alive, barely making it out of Jerusalem alive, and and, there, and Luke says, the thing that I want you to get is the church is being built up. The thing that I want you to get is that the church is walking in the fear of God. The church is full of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church is growing. That's what Luke points you at. And, and, if, you, and if you don't know the characters, if you don't know what God is doing in the world, that might seem like a, oh, by the way. Oh, by the way, the attendance was up. <laughs> and it can seem like, okay fine. And that's very nice. Everybody was going to church. But that's not what's going on. So I want to try to piece this together for you. I want to look at this, this text with you. 
So remember, we're picking up here in Acts chapter 9, following the dramatic conversion of Saul, also called Paul. So the same character, um, Paul, who wrote most of uh, the New Testament. There's this dramatic conversion, and Luke says that Saul was in Damascus for many days, preaching Christ as the Son of God, and he was confounding the Jews before then uh, escaping out of a city wall on a bas- in a basket. So that's in verses 23 uh, to 25. Um, and so uh, there in 25, then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in a basket. Now, if you flip over to 2 Corinthians, Paul actually refers to the same incident. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 32, Paul says, In Damascus, the governor under Aratus, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So um, there's a second um, reference to the same incident. And one of the things that this um, second reference in 2 Corinthians tells us is that this plot to kill Paul wasn't just a couple of thugs. It wasn't just like there was a gang of robbers and thieves that were trying to kill Paul, uh, you know, Jewish extremists or something like that. No, it was actually overseen by the king. So this went all the way up to the king of the city, and the king had a garrison, you know, the, the police were involved, and they had a warrant for his arrest. Right? And they were checking all of the exits uh, for this Saul character, and they were going to apprehend him, they were going to arrest him, and they were going to kill him. So there's a warrant out for Paul's arrest, and it's in that context that he's let down in this basket out the city wall. And just briefly, notice the ju- that juxtaposition that we've just sort of seen there for a second. You have, go back just a few verses back to the conversion of Saul. You've got sort of mighty Christ, mighty Jesus, interrupting Saul on his road to Damascus, blinding him. You have this radical conversion, full of power and glory. Then you've got the disciple Ananias going to him, laying hands on him so he can receive his sight back because he got blinded in the, inter- in, in the um, collision with Jesus. He's, his, his eyes are healed. He's baptized. The Spirit is given to him. He begins arguing with the Jews regularly, preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Um, all this power, all this might, And then we're told there's a plot to kill him, and so he's let down in a basket. Just hold that juxtaposition together for a second, right? All this power, or what seems like power and strength, and then got to get out of here. How about a basket, Paul? Okay. And he's on the run. Okay, just hold that. Hold that thought. Then we're told in Galatians 1, 18, Um, where Paul says that it was actually three years before he went down to Jerusalem, where they were still afraid of him for his former persecutions. So in Galatians 1.18, Luke says here it was many days, many days, but he tells us in Galatians 1 that it was three years. So it's three years by the time Paul actually gets down there. And after three years, surely they'd heard some rumors that this Saul guy is doing something different now, but they're still scared of him. They're still bothered by everything he had done. He had been throwing people in jail, Uh, He had done a lot of harm. He had overseen the murder of Stephen. And so they still don't trust him. So it's Barnabas, we're told, who brought him to the apostles and vouched for his conversion. Barnabas said, no, I saw him in Damascus. He's a changed man. He was preaching Jesus. He's not the same guy who used to persecute us. That's in verses 26 and 27. So Saul was then welcomed into the company of the Christians and the apostles there in Jerusalem. And he began boldly preaching with them before another plot 
arose, causing the brothers to exit Saul, stage left, back to his hometown of Tarsus, verses 28 to 30. And again, despite what might look like another setback, they keep having these plots against him, what, what might look like another setback uh, in, in the movement, this fledgling Christian movement, um, Luke insists that the controversy and this movement, Paul, the plots against uh, Paul and his needing to flee Damascus and then his needing to flee Jerusalem and go back home to Tarsus, this produced great peace in the whole church. The whole church was being built up, walking in the fear of the Lord, being comforted by the Holy Spirit, and it multiplied. In that context, he says, it was great. <laughs> Paul was on the run, and it was great. <laughs> Let's hold that together, okay? Paul was being persecuted. Paul was being chased. They were hunting for his life, and the church was doing great. That's what he says. Now, here, we pick up the story with Peter. Peter was traveling in some kind of circuit, teaching and preaching and so forth, and he came to a city called Lydda where he healed a man named Aeneas from an eight-year sickness that had kept him bedridden, some kind of paralysis had kept him in bed for eight years, and he's healed, raised up, causing many to turn to the Lord. That's verses 32 to 35. And then, and, and even in that story, while we're tempted to think this was great power in Peter, Peter says, Jesus Christ is healing you, verse 34. It's Jesus Christ who's doing the healing. He says, this is what Jesus is doing. Then in Joppa, which is nearby to the city of Lydda, there's a prominent woman there named Tabitha, also uh, translated as Dorcas, and the name means gazelle. Um, she had been known for doing good works, had been known as a seamstress in particular, sewing many clothes. Um, she dies. The disciples call for Peter to come, and uh, he comes, and when he kneels down and prays, she comes back to life. That's verses 36 to 40. As a result of that, many believed in the Lord. As a result of that, many believed in the Lord, and it says Peter ministered there for many days. That's verses 42 and 43. Now, um, the thing that I want to note for you and, and trace for you to hold together in, in these two episodes and these, in these stories that are linked together by Luke um, is, so first of all, remember, Luke is a careful historian. Um, if you remember at the beginning of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, in both places, Luke introduces what he's writing, and he says, um, he says I've researched this very carefully, Theophilus. So Theophilus. He's writing a, a man named Theophilus and says, I've compared a whole bunch of um, witness testimony. I've compared a bunch of other writings, and so what I'm giving to you here in the Gospel of Luke and what I'm giving to you here in the book of Acts, I carefully researched so that you might know it uh, in its truth. So Luke is a careful historian, but like all careful historians, um, you can't tell every single detail. You have to do some summarizing, and you have to pick and choose some events. Every historian does this, and the question, the question just is basically, are you summarizing it accurately? And are the de details that you choose to highlight, are they re truly reflective of that day and that time? Is, is, it, is it honest? Is it accurate? That's what um, a, a good historian is doing. You, everyone knows you can, you can tell a lopsided story. Um, you know, you could, maybe this has happened to you with your kids or something like that. What happened, uh, what happened here? And they, they can strictly tell you the truth, but they can tell you facts that don't actually line up to the main point. <laughs> Wait, what happened? And they tell you a number of facts that don't connect, and then you find out that they left out some of the key ones. 
right? That's bad historian work, children, right? And mom and dad have to unpack and say, oh, no, actually, this, these were some key events that happened, right? Um, you know, what happened? She hit me. Did anything else happen? No. Right? Did you hit her first? <laughs> Maybe, right? There's some key events there that might have been left out in that historical narrative. So, but notice here, Luke says it, they, um, that Saul was there in Damascus for many days, and then it's in Galatians we find out that it was three years. It was about three years between his conversion. Um, so this is all coming at us pretty quick. And so Luke is summarizing the key events, the key facts, but there's quite a bit of time that's elapsed, three years. You think about the last three years for you. You say, it does feel like a few days. <laughs> no, but if you actually look at your, your day planner, you look at your calendar over the last three years, you'll say, whoa, wow, look, we actually did a lot. There's a lot of things that have happened over the last three years. A lot of things have happened, but Luke is telling us the key things. He's summarizing and highlighting key events in order to make particular points. And, and the thing that I want to note here is that a lot of life happens, and it's ordinary life. Um, it's easy to read the Bible or read a passage like this and maybe get the impression that um, the apostles and the Christians were going around and miracles were just happening every day all the time. It was just miracle, 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 miracle. But three years happened, and we're told about two miracles in that, that time period. Now, were there others? Probably. But only two are highlighted here, right? Uh, we're also not told all the back and forth between Paul and the Jews. All we're told is that he argued with them regularly, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. And eventually, it boiled up into a massive controversy with a plot to kill him, and there was a warrant out for his arrest, and he got let down in a basket out the window. Um, that's... Um, that's what we're told. So there's a lot going on, but it's easy to think that, um, that the action is just there in the miracles. But in fact, um, if we read um, the, the, the text carefully um, and the rest of the New Testament, we find out that God didn't intend for miracles to be happening all the time. That's, that's not, God created this world and he created it to work in an orderly fashion. It ordinarily follows the, the normal um, laws of nature and so forth. But God did work extraordinary miracles through the apostles for a particular reason. The apostles were given the task of speaking authoritatively for God. Okay? And the Bible says that not anybody can just stand up and say, I got a word from the Lord. The Bible says you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> That's a dangerous thing to do. In fact, in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, there was, um, you were liable to as fierce and harsh of a punishment as even a death penalty if you stood up and said, I've got a word from God, and it turned out you were lying. Right? So the Old Testament law is not really jazzed about people making stuff up. Right? If you were going to speak on behalf of God, you better be sure. If, if you're not sure... Don't take it. Don't risk. Don't risk it. I've got a word from the Lord. Are you sure about that? Up to a death penalty? Sure about it? You better be sure. You better be sure. So the Bible doesn't assume that people are just willy-nilly going to be saying, I got a word from God. I got a word from God. It was a unique thing to have, to have the word of God. And so in particular, the Bible teaches that God gave the apostles um, in the first century um, extraordinary power to work more miracles than usual in order to prove that they had the authority from God to speak for him. Okay? Not anybody can speak for God. 
And so if you're going to say, I'm going to speak for God, Jesus said when he sent them out, particularly at the end of Mark's gospel, it says that they went out preaching, and it says they were working signs confirming the word. They worked signs confirming the word. So they did miracles in particular to prove that they had the right to speak for God and write the New Testament. We call the New Testament the authoritative word of God, and it's the word of the apostles. And we say they had the right to do that, and it can be trusted because God gave them extraordinary power. And that's not usual. It's not ordinary. And, but ordinarily, there was a lot of ordinary life. Ordinarily, there was a lot of ordinary life most of the time including some somewhat humbling things like Saul being let down in a basket and fleeing various plots. Again, just think about this. You, you might be tempted, have these two stories together. Peter shows up and heals this paralytic man, shows up and prays and heals this, this woman who's died. And you're like, and he had to get let down in a basket? <laughs> but I thought he could do miracles. I thought Saul could do miracles. I thought the apostles could do miracles. Why, why, don't you, why don't you pray for a really, really deep sleep one night and just walk right out the city gates? Why don't they do miracles then? Why does he have to get, um, you know, exited from the city? Why does he have to abscond from the city, run from another plot in Jerusalem, and run home? Why don't they do miracles? Why don't they perform wonders? Well, they don't always do that, right? There's a lot of ordinary life going on as well. They're not constantly working miracles, and so they, they didn't, it, it, apparently it, was, it, wasn't, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the thing to do. Right? It was better to go down in a basket. This is the wonder. <laughs> this is the glory. Down in a basket. Run home. Flee. This is how God's going to build his church. Now, say, why does God do it this way? Why does God one moment do this miraculous healing for this sweet woman who had done all kinds of great work, and then the next moment, people are running, running from a, 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 a plot to kill them. Well, the reason is, is because humans are tempted to focus on the wrong thing, right? Humans are tempted to focus on the wrong thing. In, in both stories, you have things that look particularly glorious and powerful. And, and they, they are. They are glorious and powerful in certain ways. Paul, on the one hand, is arguing with the Jews and refuting them. So maybe if you're slightly more like philosophically minded or whatever, you're thinking, yeah, you know, Saul was a complete rhetorical ninja. He was, conf you know, he, was, he was completely confounding the Jews. They didn't have any answers for him. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He knew the Old Testament. He was proving it, proving it, proving it. And you're like, yeah, that's Saul, right? This, this ninja. He's like, he's got all the arguments. He knows how, you know, he's, he's got it. Or maybe you think of the stories like the really amazing thing is the healing of this paralytic man. The really amazing thing is this woman, this sweet old woman who was a seamstress and she had made so many things and all the widows loved her. And man, isn't that wonderful that God raised her back to life? And again, those are wonderful things. But Luke tells us that the real center of the story are not those things. Luke tells us that things that he, he concludes from it is the church being built up and many people turning to the Lord. The center of the action is the church. The center of the action is where those who believe in Christ come to him and gather with him. 
The central glory, the central miracle, is the transformation of ordinary human lives by the gospel. And the arguments and the signs point to the gospel. The reason why he's arguing is to point to Christ, crucified, buried, rose, risen from the dead. The reason why the miracle is done is to get people to, wait, 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 what? And, and he says, Jesus Christ is healing you. This is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's not just about, you know, random um, miracles. It's not just about um, really good arguments. They all point to Christ. And, you know, you might think, how, how could the whole church be given such great peace when the same party that just put Stephen to death is now plotting against Saul. It's the same people, the same party that put Stephen to death is now plotting to put Saul to death. How in the world could you have peace in a moment like that? Well, a big reason is the one who had just overseen that murder is now speaking boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. Right? That's the central glory. The central glory is that Christ changes people. He makes them new, and he's made this man, Saul, new. The goal is to point to Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul's kind of talking about some of these same dynamics in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 1, and he says that the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. He says the preaching of the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. And he says this, he says, everywhere he goes, he says, Paul says, everywhere he goes preaching, um, the Jews demand signs and wonders, and the Greeks demand philosophy. He says, everywhere I go, the Jews ask for signs, show us a miracle, show, show us a miracle. And he says, and the Greeks want a good argument. They want philosophy, right? He says, and he says, but everywhere he goes, he preaches Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Right? They want signs, they want rhetorical prowess. They want miracles, and they want deep philosophy. And Paul says, I preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews that annoys the Jews and annoys the Greeks. Right? They won't have it. It's, it's, it, it. They won't have it. Now, the problem is not with the signs, and the problem is not with the arguments. In this text, we have both. Paul confounding the Jews... Good arguments. Did it work? No, they wanted to kill him. Well, it worked, but, you know, they, they weren't all converted, right? They wanted to kill him. And then we have signs and wonders, right? You have, you have these glories. But, but the point is to turn to Christ. So the problem is not with the signs or philosophy per se. The problem was with a resolute refusal to believe combined with those demands. The problem is... There, for certain people, they say, show us a sign, then we'll believe. Show me a sign, then I'll believe. Jesus is risen from the dead, show me a sign, right? There's a certain kind of person you could never show enough signs to, right? Show them another sign, it wouldn't be good enough. Right? Oh, well, that was, there's sort of a natural uh, phenomenon, I, I can figure out how you did that, try it again. Oh, well, no, I mean, that was, that was just, you know, I was probably getting better anyways, I know you prayed for my healing, but I'm, and that's what they'll do. They'll make excuse after excuse. There's the sign, and it won't work. One of the most astonishing examples of this in the New Testament is the raising of Lazarus, right? There's this crowd of people who know Lazarus is dead. He's been in the tomb four days, and Jesus says, take away the stone. And everybody says, oh, that's a terrible idea. It's going to smell by now. They take away the stone. He says, Lazarus, come forth. 
and Lazarus comes walking out. And then later in the same chapter, it says that some who saw what he did to Lazarus said, we've got to kill him. (laughs) What do you got to see? You just saw a dead man come back to life. And they say, we got to get rid of this guy. Right? There's some people that, that say, I need a sign. No, I need a, I need a sign. I need a sign. But it's, what's, the problem is not that they don't have a sign. The problem is, is that they refuse to believe. That's the problem. And it's the same thing with those who say that they won't believe until they hear a convincing argument. I'll, I'll believe if I, I hear a really good argument. I mean, I'm considering it, you know. But all they want is another argument, another argument, another argument. And some of you have had this experience. You know, you've, had, you've been talking to someone and they say, I just, I just, I just don't see it. I, you know, I don't understand how you can take the Bible and think it's actually the word of God. You know, it's written by a lot of people over thousands of years. How can you trust it? How can you tr-? And you, you answer it and you say, well, let's look at it. Let's see what the Bible says about itself. Let's see what about the record. Let's see the historical record. Let's see the archaeological record. Let's see its accuracy. Let's see its veracity. Let's see how it holds together. Let's see all the, all the proof that it's the word of God. It says what, it is what it says it is. And it, well, no, it's, that's just your opinion, <laughs> right? Because there's some people that the argument is enough. They say, I, I need another argument. I need another proof. I need another argument. I need more philosophy. And it's not enough. Now, Christ is the wisdom of God, and Christ is the power of God, right? That means that there really are arguments, right, that are true. There really are good arguments, and that's what Saul was doing in the synagogues. He was arguing, persuading that Christ was really the Son of God. There are arguments. Christ is the wisdom of God. But he's only the wisdom of God for those who are willing for it to be true. He's only the wisdom of God who are will- for those who are willing to believe. Christ is the power of God. Christ rose from the dead. Christ does glorious, powerful signs, right? as we see in this story. Right? And to those who are ready to believe, they say, and they fall on their faces, and they say, Jesus is Lord. But for those who are not willing to believe, it will never be enough. The apostles reasoned from evidence. They, they reasoned from evidence. Hear that, right? The, the end of John's gospel, the, ends of, the end of John's gospel, John says, um, I've written these things, these things that we have seen with our own eyes that you may believe. Right? Here's an eyewitness testimony, right? Saying, this is what we saw, and we're writing it so you may believe. It's not like the Bible says, check your brain at the door, right? It's not like the Bible says, you know, yeah, use reason for science and mathematics and things like that, but when it comes to spiritual things, you just got to leap. No, that's not what the Bible says at all. The Bible says, here's the evidence, right? Here's the evidence. Jesus Christ was crucified. A whole bunch of people saw him dead. They saw him buried. And three days later, they saw him alive, right? People saw him. Testimony, evidence, do you believe? Right. That's, that's, that's the offer. Right. That's the offer. But the fundamental question then is not the argument or the evidence, although we have those. The fundamental question is willingness to submit, willingness to believe. If you're not willing, no amount of signs or arguments will ever convince you. If you're not willing, no amount of signs or arguments will ever convince you. But the Christian church is the gathering together of those who believe in Christ, who fear the Lord, who have the comfort of the Holy Spirit. The Christian church is the gathering together of those who believe, who have been changed by this message. And this is why the church is no ordinary human institution. The church is no ordinary human institution. It's not based on human action or human wisdom, right? I mean, if, if, the, if the church was the gathering together of people, I mean, so the, the, the juxtaposition here is arguments and philosophy and signs and miracles, right? 
if it was about those things, I mean, there's plenty of human clubs out there about, you know, weird phenomena, you know, UFO clubs, for example. I hear they're on the rise, right? Um, it, whatever, like, you know, it's like we saw weird stuff. We believe in miracles. Like that, you could have a human club, a gathering together of people who believe that weird things happen. Miracles happen, right? But, okay, fine. Maybe, maybe not, but that's not the church. The church is not a club that gathers around miracles. On the other side, you can also have human gatherings that are all about philosophy, all about argumentation, right? And we got way too many philosophy clubs, if you ask me, right? We could do it with a few less, right? But if you want to gather together with a bunch of people that want to argue about stuff a lot, about the deep things and philosophical, you can find that. The church is not a club that gathers around philosophical arguments. We believe in the truth. We believe in the power of God. But that isn't what we're gathered around. That's not what makes the church the church. The church is where Christ is present with the people that have been transformed by his message. It's something that is different than both of those things. It combines them, but it's more than that. And it's different than all that. It's not based on purely human action or wisdom. Think about some of the things that Jesus said about the church. He said that he was establishing his church on the rock of Peter's confession such that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And he was giving him the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose on earth as it is in heaven. That's Matthew 16, 18 and 19. Now, that's not the Lions Club. <laughs> that's not your golf club. That's not your chess club, right? How many chess clubs? <laughs> We're fighting hell. <laughs> we have the keys of the kingdom. No, you're not doing that, right? That's, that's not the Elks Club. That's not the Lions Club. That's, that's not in a... Who says that about their gathering? We're fighting hell. That's what, that's what Jesus said. Jesus says that his gathering together, the church that he was establishing, was, he was establishing it so that he would, it would fight against the gates of hell. Elsewhere, the church is called the body of Christ. The body of Christ. Such that what is done to Christ's people is reckoned as done to him. Remember early in Earlier in Acts 9, we looked at this last week, where Saul, Saul is confronted by Jesus, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ takes personally what's being done to his people. Saul's running around throwing Christians in jail, and Jesus says, you're doing it to me. He reckons the church his body. The church is called the bride of Christ, for whom he died to sanctify and cleanse it and make it perfectly holy without blemish. Again, what hu merely human institution, what human club says uh, we're, we're aiming for perfection? Right? No, that's, that's, that's something completely different. And in 1 Peter, he says the church is a holy priesthood. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's elect and precious. Now, God has established families. That's a real institution that God has established. God has established nations, civil governments, that is a real thing that God has established in this world. And together, we, we're free to establish other human institutions. We can start businesses. We can start chess clubs. We can start social clubs. That's fine. You're welcome to do that. But no other assembly on this planet has such promises. There's no other human assembly that has these kind of promises, that the gates of hell will not prevail it against it, that it has the keys of the kingdom, that what it binds and looses on earth is bound and loosed in heaven, that it's the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, a holy priesthood. For the last number of decades, many people have left the church. Right? The church attendance rates, you can, you can look at them all. 
They're going down. Many churches have become religious social clubs. So the last hundred years, many of the churches have become religious social clubs, and basically you can have your pick between an old traditional social club, religious social club, and a new hip and trendy one with screens and smoke machines. Right? Which one do you want? Right? But they've basically all become religious social clubs with the motivational speakers and uplifting music. And so it's not surprising then that not only have many people left the church in general, many men have left the church. Right? Why? Well, because many churches have abandoned this belief in the supernatural nature of the church as battling hell, as having the keys of the kingdom, as being the body and the bride of Christ, as being a holy priesthood and a temple, the center of God's work in the world, right? And if it's, if it's just a religious social club, then you can pick and choose. And if you got something better to do on Sunday morning, then do it. Why not? And I think in particular, this is very annoying to men. Men were made by God to want to do things that matter. That's what we're, we're made by God, to want to do things that matter. And when many churches turned into these inspirational religious clubs, many men left because they said, I'd rather not. No, I don't want to talk about my feelings and weird insp have an inspirational pep talk. No thanks. I'd rather golf. Right? I'd rather go hunting. I'd rather go fishing. Right? If, I'm, if it's not gonna, if it's not like really matter, then I want to do something that I that at least is kind of useful. I I don't want to do that. I want to go talk about my feelings, and I don't want I don't want that. No. And, but what happened? Right on schedule, as people have left the church, families have disintegrated. Families have disintegrated, and our nation is unraveling. Families have disintegrated, and our nation is unraveling. Why? Because you cannot have a moral people without a moral center. You cannot have a moral people without a moral center. Right? That's what's happened. We gave up the moral center. The courage and faithfulness of previous generations in our land, the courage and faithfulness of previous generations came from their commitment to the kingdom of God. It came from their commitment to the Christian church, not as a social club, not as a social club, but as the mission of the living God on earth. The mission of the living God on earth. Ordinary people gathered together with their God who's saving the world. Right? If, if the church is just a religious social club, then it doesn't matter. But if it's the mission of God on earth, then it, then it matters. Many people think that the church is just for really super spiritual people, really super religious people. no. The church is for ordinary people who know they need God to build strong families, strong businesses, schools, and nations. That's what the church is for, right? It's for people who know they need God to build strong families, businesses, schools, and nations. Bible reading and prayer is the mission plan, but the church is mission command, right? It's mission command. The church grows through the preaching of the cross of Christ, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, crucified for sinners, raised from the dead, ascended to the Father, Lord of the church, Lord of the nations. That's either true, and so, every, so it matters, or it's not. If, if, if he isn't, if he isn't any of those things, then we really do have better things to do on Sunday mornings. If it's not true, then we might as well do something else. But if Jesus is Lord, then you need him for everything. 
You need him for your marriage. You need him for your parenting. You need him for your business. You need him for the future. You need him for this, your city. You need him for your neighborhood. You need him for everything. Right? If, if what he said is true, then you need him. And therefore, if you need him, there's nothing more important than you could do on Sunday mornings. This is the message that has transformed the world. It really is. This is the message that transformed the Roman Empire in 300 years. Went from being a pagan empire, worshiping false gods, to worshiping Jesus. 300 years. This is the same message that conquered the barbarian tribes of Europe and spawned the age of exploration and the industrial revolution and established religious and political freedom for the West. This is what did that. You can, go, you can still go to Europe today. Not that I've done this, but I've seen pictures. And you go into Europe in little towns in Europe, and what you'll find at the center of every little town is what? A church. Why? Why is there a church there, right? Because it was the gospel. It's the gospel that did it, right? It was the gospel. They, they gathered and they said, we're Christians, so first of all, we worship Jesus. And they gathered. They believed the gospel that God was doing something unique in this. And so they built a church. Many of them built churches that took hundreds of years to build. Right? That's how important it was to them. Right? That's how important that gathering was to them because they believed the message that Jesus was doing something different. And from that, what did they build around it? A city. Right? Families, businesses, schools. That's how cities are built. That's how our Western civilization was built. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was crucified for our sins, was buried, and he rose again on the third day. Right? That's the message. This historic fact that this happened, right? this message of the cross, is the wisdom and the power of God by which the church grows and the world turns to the Lord. And when people turn to the Lord, they gather together in the church. We are that gathering. We are that church. We are that fellowship. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And that fellowship changes everything. Father, thank you for how you have grown our church here in Moscow. Thank you for how there's multiple churches and services and how it's multiplying. We know that this is all from you. And we trust that you are doing this as part of a great reformation and revival in our land that will turn many hearts back to you as they believe in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would keep this gospel at the center of everything we do, and we pray that you would continue to do it because we ask for it in Jesus' name, who taught us to pray, singing. Do you know God? Some know a lot about God, but do not really know him. Others think they know that all, can, all that can possibly known about, be known about God, but don't think it's very much because they believe he's so distant and mysterious, and so they don't really know God. But Jesus said this, this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. John 17, verse 3. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, you cannot know God except through Jesus Christ, whom God sent. But this is no usual messenger. When the disciples asked Jesus to show them the Father, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was the perfect messenger. He was with the Father before he came into the world, and so he knew the Father fully and completely, and therefore he revealed God the Father fully and completely. He is the word of the Father, the exact image of the Father. 
And this is why the Christian church has always insisted that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He is God in the flesh. To receive Christ, then, is to receive God. But to reject Christ, then, is to reject God. But to know Christ is to know God. Jesus said that he came to give us God's words. He said if we listen to him, we are listening to God. This is why reading the Bible, listening to the Bible, being taught, and obeying what the Bible says to do matters so much. This is knowing God. And the central way Jesus has revealed the Father to us is through his death and resurrection for us. This is how we know God through Christ. And what do we find there? We find that his justice for our sins was perfectly paid for, and his mercy for our sins was perfectly and fully extended. And if you know that your sins have been dealt with by the cross, by the only true God and his son, Jesus Christ, whom he sent, then you have begun to know God and you have eternal life. That is what this table proclaims. So come and believe. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. In the night, it might which, seem like a little bit of a funny message to talk about the importance of church to a whole bunch of people that came to church. <laughs> yeah, we know, Pastor, we're here. Don't we know? And, and yes, and good job. Um, but what I want to encourage you in as, as you go is it's not just going. It's how you think about it. It's how you think about what are we doing, right? If this is mission central, if this is the center of what God is doing with the world, if this is the center of the city, the center of the kingdom in the Christian church, then you want to come with that in mind. You want to come thinking like that. You want to go to church thinking, what am I doing? What I want to do is I want to rebuild the West. That's what I want to do. I want, I want to rebuild my family. I want to see my marriage as strong as it can be. I want God's blessing on my business. I want God's blessing on my neighborhood. I want God's blessing on it all. That's what you're doing. Think like that. So that when you come, you pray like that, you sing like that, you listen like that, you eat and you drink like that. And that changes everything. It really does. Many of us have been here for many years, and there's a number of you who are pretty new. And I just want to say, that's what's been going on here. You want to know, what, what's going on here? What, what's, why, why is it going like this? The answer is, many years ago, we determined to meet together, gather together, because we believed in Jesus and we believed in what he said about the church and God is blessing it. Everything flows in and out of this. So go now with God's blessing on you and on your families. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. And amen.